0: Uh, Dr. Steve Austin. Uh, He's got a little more time this morning because number one, I don't need to spend a lot of time introducing him because everybody already knows who he is from last night. And we're not, we we only sing hymns at the beginning in the morning, beginning in the afternoon. So I'm going to ask Steve to come up and to, you can open us in prayer and then we'll begin.
1: and reflect on you. We thank you that you're our creator, that uh, you've made the world for us to enjoy and to understand and uh, show people. Lord, we we pray that uh, we would be your servants, your, your ministers. Thank you for giving us strength. Um, help us uh, see these things that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'd like to tell you uh, a little more about myself. I teach geology. I'm an adjunct faculty, uh, at uh, Cedarville University. Uh, you probably know about Cedarville University. Um, what a fine uh, university with a, with a, with a good mission statement. But what they do is they have a geology major at, uh, at Cedarville University. So I feel especially privileged to be able to talk to undergraduate students about, uh, Geology, including earthquakes and uh, mud layers and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but Cedarville is, uh, um, is a special place. Um, engineering program is, uh, kind of over the top and uh, so is nursing and that kind of thing. So there's, there's quite a bit of majors and it's in uh, the middle of nowhere in Ohio next to Cedar uh, Cedarville, next to uh, Springfield southwest of, uh, uh, of uh, Columbus uh, Cedarville uh, has me doing uh, field trips so I do field trips for them and also do um, um, I, I do Skype links and, and I even show up at the university sometimes so that's that's the kind of what happens <laughs> they usually come to me so um, I do field trips all over the place and uh, so that's great and so if um, um, Always be ready to pray, lead a field trip, or die. That's basically, that's, that's what geologists do uh, it's for a living. Okay, always be ready to pray, <laughs> lead a field trip, or die. So uh, but anyway, uh, there's, good, uh, there's, there's um, a, a good program of, uh, of lead, mentoring and leading students into graduate studies, especially in, in the field of geology. I feel especially privileged to be associated with that program. Logos Research Associates is the um, is an affiliation of scientists who are mentoring scientists, and the concept of it is kind of unique in the creation world. But uh, a, a group of us got together and we formed a an association, and when we invite scientists that have a strong testimony uh, and academic credentials and accomplishments to join us and then we mentor other scientists. And, uh, we have affiliates that come on that are, we, we call ambassadors who are communicators that we also mentor and they, uh, get, uh, the, the thinking, um, the, of our group kind of, uh, in, in a form that can be communicated. Anyway, Logos Research Associates, out of Costa Mesa, California, Cedarville, University of Cedarville, Ohio. Okay, this morning I want to talk to you about where creation science should go from here. And, uh, I've got, uh, four things I'd like to share with you this morning. The first one is the, is the most fun to talk about, is how to talk to anyone about creation. And when I say anyone, I mean anyone, right? Okay, uh, you, you want to be ready to talk about creation to anyone and it's not because i've learned it all or something like that it's because i've found some people just common people with a high school degree that i've watched talk to other people about creation and uh there there is a a creation evangelism gift or something like that uh <laughs> <laughs> there are there are people that are just naturals at doing it Okay, And it's important that we learn from it. And uh, I have a friend, after 25 years in the creation science uh, movement, he showed me some very basic things that I'll talk about this morning. Uh, a simple firefighter with a high school diploma uh, showed me uh, how to talk to people about creation, how to talk to anyone about creation then i want to standardize what i've learned and into three affirmations i think they're the three most important affirmations that we can have as we uh, talk to people about creation and uh, that's that's what creation uh, science should do and go from here three affirmations three attitudes i want to talk about attitude and um, and and, and patience and endurance need to be there attitudes we'll talk about it and then three actions there are there are there are three uh, action items i think that we should Im- be involved in or collectively participate in on uh, on a global scale the three actions how to talk to anyone about creation i uh, have have an unusual example <laughs> a real unusual example I have, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the example shows me there's five steps to talk to anyone about creation and I'll kind of formalize those and, and, and then what I would like is what, in the question period, you can come back to me and, uh, t- tell me how they work. Okay, application. This, the man is named James Carter. Okay, James Carter is a firefighter the Bonita Fire Department uh south of San Diego, California. And uh he is uh what would you say? He's he's a um he's an M, he's a he's an EMT, so he has knowledge of biology. He's a firefighter, um and so he knows emergency response. And because of that, uh and he's and he's good at what he does, he is, you know, he's he's the modern day hero in our culture you know he does uh, he's like the military he does some things uh real rather crazy pull people out of burning buildings uh give first aid uh saw cars up uh he does all kinds of things and um he has a real pleasant winsome attitude and he's uh he he's been around me for now uh uh 25 or 30 years and uh we just he just had the best of friendship. In fact, I was with him on Saturday night. We were looking uh, at stars through the telescope. Well, anyway, Jim Carter um, has this uh, a Wrangler Jeep, and he has, uh, he has seven telescopes, okay, and his hobby is astronomy, okay, and his hobby uh, kind of dominates his life, and so what here's what he does he he said okay i'm going to go to the park and i'm going to set up uh my telescopes about when the sun is going down and then i'm going to be ready and whoever comes around uh you know i'll ask him hey have you seen the moons of jupiter have you seen the rings of saturn and uh, right here i you know i got the, the telescope let's look you know i can think and he leaves it open to god and he basically says uh, I'm here in the park uh ready to ready to encounter people and show them the rings of uh Saturn and the moons of Jupiter and he's got some really good telescopes uh and uh he has uh he had, had little heaters here and things like make it a little more comfortable but anyway when you set up in the park like that and the sun goes down people see it's over there and they start coming to see you and see him and he's uh you know that's kind of what he does he knows the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. And he counts on that. That's what he counts on, that, that uh, God, uh, God is revealing himself in nature. He knows that, and he believes it so strongly that all he needs to do is just call attention to a couple things, and people will respond. The heavens glare to glory. Of God firmament does so. So God's doing His job, and there's Jim Carter, you know, with uh, his setup. Well, his problem is: look at that. He's got all of these uh, telescopes and stuff, and he's bouncing around in a in a Wrangler Jeep, and uh, he thinks about it, and he thinks I could do this more efficiently if I improve my vehicle. Okay. Okay the Unimog believe it or not you can uh, get a four wheel drive uh fire truck FOB uh Long Beach for $5000 that's what he did he got a uh, four wheel drive Unimog Mercedes fire truck okay and um <laughs> he uh, he'd heard about it and it's kind of a cult in California. There's these Unimog groups that they go around and everything. But he's he's a kind of a loner there, and so he um, built his Unimog. Now he's custom, good at custom building things, like uh, uh, putting uh, um, metal metal work and boxes, and it has a hatch on top. And uh, it, has, it had all kinds of fire uh, pump equipment inside. He took the fire pump equipment out, left it blank inside, and then that became his uh, mobile creation observatory. Now, in San Diego, we have, uh, and, and maybe uh, Houston's like that too, we have a um, we have a cross, okay, in a park. It's called Mount Soledad. And there's a park right there uh, next to La Jolla in San Diego. And the cross on the mountain has been an annoyance to a lot of people. And uh, so uh, the, the city sold the the, the memorial to uh, a private individual. And then this, uh, uh, this park sits there on the top of the hill. And it's a great place to go. So under the cross on Mount Soledad, he sets up. His Unimog with his seven telescopes. Do you know what happens when he does that? Okay. Lot, first thing, I tried, I, I said, well watch this, I'm gonna park my truck. I got a F350, uh, diesel power stroke. I'm gonna park it next to your vehicle and then we'll both look cool. Well nobody <laughs> talked about my truck. Okay, but people love to, uh, to come see his truck. So when you, when, when you're up there in the evening at Mount Soledad, uh, under this, uh, cross memorial, uh, you see him with his truck there and then you see a bunch of people and you see seven telescopes. What are you going to do? Okay. Well, you, you'd ask somebody next to you what's going on. Oh, he's a firefighter and there's his fire truck and he's, uh, he's, he's showing people the moons of Jupiter and the rings of Saturn and uh so um people just flock to it and uh so he gets these huge crowds but he's more important on getting one on one contact the first question he asks typically hey have you ever seen the rings of saturn or the moons of jupiter and he he uh he usually asks that question and people will say well i saw it on a um a, I, I saw it in the National Geographic Magazine or something. No, he says, no. Have you ever seen, uh, the rings of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter with just you, your eye and a piece of glass between you and the planets? And, uh, he, he wants you to look directly at the, uh, at the universe around. Well, here's the setup. Uh, he's got the Unimog, which is a great vehicle for any, on, and of course, he's an EMT, so he has Stokes litters. You pull out the, uh, you know, the uh, the the uh, stretcher kind of thing, and he's got the telescopes on the stretcher, and the uh, the uh, legs for the telescopes are crutches, right? Okay, he's he, and he can he he manufactures all this kind of stuff. Oh, okay, he has uh, the telescopes. Then he has a laptop computer. The laptop computer is usually on the side and sometimes you'll have a, a flat panel screen on the side. The telescopes are there and um, the laptop computer. The purpose of laptop computer is to synchronize with some of the telescopes to get them to track through the sky. Because they have to move because the sky moves. And then he can use the computer to predict the exact location of the of the planets of are the moons of Jupiter, rings of Saturn. Okay, and box number one is the gear. That's the gear he has for uh, um, setting up his telescope, the eyepieces and the hardware. Box number two, I'm not going to tell you what box number two is. Okay, you, you, uh, I'll get, I'll get to that in a minute. And uh, no fish bumper stickers. Okay, not nothing like that. Okay, and. Every door on hatch on the vehicle opens, and you see complete transparency. Everything he's got is right there. And then that's, uh, that's kind of the setup. Okay, here's the five steps that I've discovered from him and from talking to him, especially step number three and four. Okay, uh, recognize how easy and hard it is to talk about creation. And uh, my, my friend appreciates this it 's easy because of Romans one nineteen and twenty um, for that which is known of God is evident to them for he has shown it in them ever since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes, the eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen from the things which are made, so they are without excuse there 's an internal witness God has shown it in them. is that the the correct uh, translation of that? That verse, uh, 119. That, that is incredible. That, that there's an internal witness in every person that, uh, God is creator. Internally. Conscience. Is that the way to say it? And then there's an external witness. The heavens glare the glory of God. Uh, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Be understood from the things which are made. Romans 120. So there's an internal and external witness. That makes it easy to talk about the subject. And if somebody is listening to their conscience, and looking at the world around them, they're, uh, God is helping them to see and recognize. It's hard because Romans 1.19 and 20 is sandwiched between what? Romans 1.18 and Romans 1.21. Uh, God is displeased with people. Okay, 1.18. And those people su- suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 1.21. So um, that makes it hard. So it's hard and easy. Okay. And so God needs to prepare us to, to, to recognize him. Well, here's step number two is uh, develop a hobby or specialty that is a talking point. And, uh, I met, well, it must be something concrete, not abstract, your hobby or specialty. It must be something unique, not routine. Uh, something that can be communicated to both adults and children. In other words, has appeal on an on immense level. And then um, examples like um, like some of my friends that that I've mentored and been been with. Jim Carter, uh, Chuck Anders is a hike leader with Canyonaires. Um He he was, believe it or not, elected pr- president of the Sierra Club. Okay, he's he's so so amazing uh in his interaction with people that he he, he, he uh, people like him. Anyway, he's a hike leader with Canyonaires and Canyonaires is a group of of um basically national uh, or um, um, co- uh, county park um volunteers. And these county park volunteers they, uh, they're docents and they go to the, the local, uh, county parks and, uh, offer, um, natural, um, uh, studies. So Chuck Anders is, he knows every plant in the Chaparral community out in San Diego County and he's versatile. He can go around to all of the national, or all the, all the county and uh, city parks and even the state parks and uh, he's he's got quite a name for himself and he and he walks around with a Batman utility belt basically and uh, he has all these equipment to uh, to to see and observe and he he leads hikes okay those those kind of people you you understand the kind of people I'm talking about if you have somebody like that in your church encourage them to do their thing. Now, here's the thing that uh, that I learned after 25 years: recount experiences that you have had with others. Um, now, uh, this is probably the most important thing I'm going to tell you this morning. But if these, if if you have this kind of a, a, um, mode of relating to people about creation, and you do it in a in a way that I've learned here you uh you, you can be very effective. Okay, and and I watched uh Jim Carter as he delivered his series of questions and then when he made some observations. He always starts out with third person stories. And uh and and, and the stories are so memorable that you uh they, they attract your attention. Okay, One day, when he had his telescope set up in the park, somebody, uh, a a man and a woman, husband and wife, came to him to see, look through the telescopes. And it turns out the lady was a New Age priestess, okay? And uh, she uh, was a very spiritual person and in tune with the power source that is behind Saturn, okay? (laughs) Okay? and her husband knows that the power source is back of saturn and here's this guy saying how would you like to see the rings of saturn and um he wants to see the power source behind saturn right and um anyway it's, it's a it's a, it's a memorable story well anyway it turns out that as we go around the sun and as Saturn goes around the sun, the power source re- wants to remain hidden from us. So it moves behind Saturn to keep itself concealed from our point of view or our perspective. And the husband was there to really knock down this point about how the power source doesn't want to be seen. And, uh, and, and she, he recognized it was kind of a, um, a cop out on, uh, uh, on the on this uh thinking well anyway he, he has stories like that when uh i showed him or her blank he said blank now um one time the uh the astrophysics class from san diego's uh university of california san diego came up to Mount Soledad for whatever reason, and they encountered my friend Jim Carter and his telescopes on top of the, the mountain. And you know what he said to the astrophysics prof? Have you seen the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter? <laughs> <laughs> you know what he said? No. <laughs> I've never looked through a telescope at the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter. And uh, so he's got his class there. Okay, and, um my, uh, my friend, uh, Jim, uh, shows him the, the, the sky, and two things came, uh, came out. They start, they started getting in a conversation about how the universe seems to be precisely timed like a clock, and that everything can predict, be predicted way ahead of schedule, and of course, the, 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 computer is calculating the positions uh in real time and then we can go look and actually see and it so he said it's see, it, he uh, responded it seems like we live inside of a clock a very precisely tuned clock and then the other thing he said is here we are uh it, we it looks like we're in a privileged position we have this technology right at this time able to look at the planets and uh, the the whole universe appears to be um, made for us to look at it. And and then my friend says my 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 friend says hey have you heard about quantized redshifts okay and uh, the, uh, he starts quoting the paper by Arp in uh, one of the astrophysics journals and the professor knows Arp personally and he knows that this guy is talking to him about his friend and has read his paper the quantized redshift paper and that really shows that that we're in a privileged position the uh, the way the uh, the light comes to us the it's redshifted in packets it's not all redshifted in different to a different degrees it seems to be in quantum bundles and that as if we're near the center of the universe okay and And ARP's paper was about that perception that we seem to be near, very near the center of the universe and it seems to be made for us to look at. And so I got into that. And when, when the astrophysics prof heard about uh, that, uh, he was, he was just totally, um, um, shocked or stunned. Okay. That anybody, you know, an, an amateur would be showing people that with that kind of, uh, that That kind of expertise okay well he uh, he had been mentored by a friend of mine, uh, Russell Humphreys. Uh, he knows uh, what he 's talking about, so when I showed him blank, he said, and he tells these third person stories, you know what I mean, and uh, if you keep talking that way and he has endless stories when I showed him this, then pretty soon you 're going to ask well you know. Cause it, you, you show a whole bunch of puzzles and what people think about the universe around Pretty soon you're going to be asking him, hey, he guy he guys knows his stuff. He can remember all these stories. What do you believe? Okay. And then he'll tell you another, I showed him and he said, and then you can, well, well how, how do you understand that? And so pretty soon everybody's there begging him to tell him what you believe. Okay. And, um, yeah, and then I said, when I saw, I thought. Okay, he always tells what he sees and how he perceives it. Kind of really interesting. And that's how he tells what he believes. And so he always tells it as a reflection of something he sees. Okay, and he doesn't use the second person, you. Very cautious. So he doesn't challenge people to uh state their position or understanding he elicits it and eventually he'll (laughs) get around to talking about what he how he understands it so he uses the second person with caution because that can make people uncomfortable okay number four is expect one of four responses now when you show something uh uh, the rings of saturn moons of jupiter or somebody they're going to respond in certain ways they'll have an atheist response only about eight percent of the public a uh, pantheist, maybe 40%. A deist response, about 7%. A theist response, about 45%. So most people are theists as, as they perceive the world around them. In other words, they, they think of a transcendent God or uh, not a pantheistic uh, force. Okay, so number five is get invited or ask permission to explain your view of creation and the people will will just be focused on what he's going to say next as as they're looking at the things around him and he can share the gospel he can share um his view of creation he can he can talk about uh, physics astronomy geology that kind of thing and this is an example of apostle Paul you know how about Paul at the uh, um, the areopagus uh act 17 uh hey i see you uh, you're a very religious peace people you have all these statues you even have a statue of the unknown god hey him who you ignorantly worship let me proclaim to you okay so paul's uh, paul's got an example like this uh people seek to know god okay and he and paul s- shows that to the uh, uh in athens those, to the to the crowd, the the people need to repent. Judgment day is appointed. He has appointed a man uh, day on which uh, all men will be judged. Veri- uh, Jesus was verified to be sa- savior, and so the, the you know Acts shows you in a good example of how Paul did it. Okay, there's the setup: Unimog telescopes, laptop computer, box number one, box number two, no fish bumper stickers. Now, what is box number two? He's got tracks in there, and he he gives away DVDs. He just gives them away. That's his ministry. He's just a, a DVD giveaway kind of thing. And uh, once you, you respond to uh, and 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 have a position, he'll give you he'll give you one of his favorite DVDs. And he, and he knows what's in the the DVD, and so he can can do it. Neat idea. Okay, I think. I learned a lot from this. Uh, it was very, very significant. Now, um, you know, I've met a pastor in Montana. Okay. And you know what his hobby is? Eagles. He just loves eagles and he knows everything about eagles backwards and forwards. And he, after, after, uh, uh, uh Sunday afternoon after, uh, the the church service he goes out and he observes eagles and eagles nesting all kinds of things about it it just they probably uh, those those things are there the five steps recognize how easy and hard it is to talk about creation develop a hobby or specialty as a talking point um recount experiences that you've had with others uh do the the first do the uh, uh, third person kind of story thing um, recount experiences you had with respect for responses and then get invited or get permission ask permission to explain your view of creation. Can you use a specialty or hobby to talk to somebody about creation that's that's the uh, uh, that that's the uh, that's the application and I think we we all need to be better at doing that. For example, uh, I I take my students, my graduate students, down the trail at Grand Canyon, and we stop on the Coconino Sandstone. OK, right there. We go down the Bright Angel Trail right below uh, Bright Angel Lodge on the south rim of Grand Canyon. And then we stand at the switchback uh, right there at the Coconino Sandstone on the trail. And uh, what do we do? People come by and say, who are you? Oh, we're a geology class. We're looking at the Coconino Sandstone. And, uh, well, tell me about it. You know, everybody is ready to uh, to receive some instruction. And that's a special moment, especially with an awe experience going on, people coming down the trail. You don't have to worry about going to the world. The world's coming to you. Half the people speak German or Japanese on the trail. Okay, it's uh, sometimes uh, you're uh, you, you're uh, it's a foreign culture there. Anyway, that's the um, and and my students know that they can talk to people about creation right there on the trail. Let your light so shine. Yeah, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Okay, that's the uh, um, that's the imperative. Jesus' statement. City cannot a city set on the hill cannot be hidden. So let your light so shine before men. Okay, I'm going to talk to you more detail about um, uh, what I think we sh- where we should go from here. Uh, three affirmations. I think these three affirmations, if we make them, will allow us to be effective and are very effective in our ministry. The three affirmations I I think we've we've already encountered the affirmation uh that conscience convicts a person's convicts a person of his relationship with god psalm 1 um psalm 14:1 uh, the fool has said and what is it in literally in the hebrew no god there is is not in the it's in italics and it's not there in the most of, so the fool has said no god in other words you I think I understand that verse to be saying the fool acknowledges that God exists but he says I don't want anything you to do with you God just no. Okay? Uh in other words conscious is affirming the the person. Um Madeline Murray O'Hare uh the uh, famous atheist when she was asked by uh, a creation debater, one of my uh uh my friends um, one of my associates, Dwayne Gish, to define what an atheist is, she said, an atheist is a person who lives their life as if there is no God. And I know some Christian atheists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'm an atheist. I live my life as if there's no God. Okay. And, uh, but anyway, uh, that isn't that interesting. Uh, but, uh, conscience is there. You know, Carl Sagan uh, died the week he died. A friend of mine prayed with Carl Sagan. Okay. Um, You know, I don't know how, uh, what's his relationship with God, but, you know, uh, Carl Sagan was prayed for. And he asked for prayer. He asked my friend to pray for him. Hmm. Uh, Richard Dawkins was debating uh, <laughs> uh a creation or a, a, a New Testament scholar and on the existence of God and uh in the crowd uh was a psychiatrist and as the debate occurred, Richard Dawkins explained the meaning of atheism. That means there is no purpose to life. And the, uh, the psychiatrist got up in the crowd right as the, uh, the, the question-and-answer period came, and he said, that's the main problem we have in psychiatric medicine, is people need a purpose when they live, okay, for life. And uh, that's, th- that, that's man's affliction. We need a purpose. And wh- what is that reflecting, that man is created in the image of God? For some type of purpose, and uh, atheism doesn't offer that purpose, does it so uh, so conscience affirms uh, a and convicts of a person's relationship with God. we gotta count on that, so just count on now, if somebody is in tune with what their conscience is saying and wants to say yes God, then of course uh they can look around them the conch, the cosmos is an external display of a person's uh to a person of god's char- uh character his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen in the things which are made so we got to affirm that okay and we don't have to we don't have to defend that all we have to do is affirm it i think and then then i think we need to affirm that creation was by god's command through his word and if we make those three affirmations, well, if we affirm that creation was by God's command through his word, um, then theistic evolution will go away. Hebrews 3, or 11 verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which do appear were not made out of things which can be seen. In other words, God's invisible word or something invisible was involved with um Making uh, the, the world we see, and by the word of God, okay. And then, Second Peter three five, uh, that uh, that's an interesting verse that talks about the um, about the scoffers in the last day, and th- they'll they'll deny that that God um, spoke and and it was done. Psalm thirty three six and nine, uh, Psalm thirty three. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done; he commanded and it stood fast. Man, I remember John Whitcomb uh, one day uh, giving a lecture, and he really preached that verse. He just shouted that verse. You know, by the uh, it, it, you know, he spoke and it was done; he commanded and it stood fast. I think that verse argues for fiat creation. And I, and I believe that's the kind of God that we have. And He just spoke and it was done. Now there's also process and fiat in creation. For example, day three of creation week, He, he gathered the seas together into ocean basins from the original con- configuration of water all over the earth. And then, uh, he, but He spoke and, and, th- and things were done. So those three affirmations, I think, will go away, and there's, we'll make theistic evolution and evolution go away in our thinking and replace our thinking with, with better thoughts than, than thinking about evolution. Here's the three attitudes, and I'll some of this is a little bit humorous, but I'll, I'll get to it here. Um, encounter the elephant with gentleness and respect. Now you know people have elephants in their mind when when they're looking through telescopes or whatever you've got to encounter that, but you need to encounter it with gentleness and respect right Remember those elephant and refrigerator jokes uh, you know those those kind of things i i have a I have a, I have a book of those let me see uh, You look in the refrigerator to see what is really there. People imagine there's elephants in their refrigerator. you want to look in there and or get them to look in there to see if what they perceive is really there. So that's the good thing about looking through a telescope at the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter, is uh, you get to see what's really there. And then when you look at what's there, it looks like it's a precisely tuned clock, and it looks like we're in a privileged place to uh, view it, and there's all kinds of beauty and respect, and that's the kind of thing that's significant and then uh i think our attitude should be storytelling about previous encounters like my friend tell stories about previous encounters as you develop a talking point agenda okay so the attitude is, when when we're when we're working with people is to tell stories and i've got some stories and i'll i'll bring some of those up later as we as we talk about it but the stories should illustrate a talking point agenda. I'll give you, I'll give you an example of a talking point agenda. Uh, the fossil record. The fossil record is a gigantic elephant in most people's mind, right? The elephant is their, um, evolution, right? Common ancestor, branching tree, the fossil record proves it. Okay. You want to, you, 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 you know what I mean? Okay, when when I uh, encounter that elephant, I want to have some positive affirmations of what the fossil record really is. So I, I think I had five uh, uh, talking points. But anyway, the, the, the fossil record shows abrupt appearance. Okay, there's no transitional uh, br- branching tree coming up out of the uh, fossil record toward the top showing that uh, things appear abruptly. So abrupt appearance, things remain the same, stasis, clams have always been clams, snails have always been snails, um, birds have always been birds, um, and that type of thing. And you can affirm stasis in the fossil record, okay? And then can talk about uh, some details of the fossil record. Like, for example, as you look at the fossil record, you see evidence of rapid burial, some really very interesting things about rapid burial, even soft tissue uh, of of dinos that's being discovered, um, and so the fossil record is is really amazing when you when you start looking at it in detail, how petrification has occurred and not occurred, and how the how the fossils organized in, uh, in uh, outcrop. Um, one uh, affirmation is incomplete ecosystems. Incomplete ecosystems. As you look at the fossil record and you you see a layer with fossils in it, I often ask myself, what did those organisms eat? Okay, the wall at Dinosaur National Monument has a thousand five hundred bones on it, uh, dino bones. The wall at Dinosaur National Monument, the quarry, the uh, the quarry site, and on that wall, I think there's one fragment of a piece of a tree. Okay, but you know what the most abundant fossil on the, on the wall of the Dinosaur National Monument is? It's not dinos, it's clams. And if you point it out, you start looking, you find just all kinds of clam fossils all around the dino bones. And that shows you what? Did the dinos eat clams? Uh, no, it's an incomplete ecosystem mixed together. And so, as, as you encounter this elephant, the fossil record say, in somebody's mind, you can replace it with your observations or with your, uh, um, with, with your talking point agenda. That, that's what I'm getting at. Okay, so uh, talking point agendas are, are, are the great thing to have. How do you get a giraffe in, in a refrigerator? The answer is, you open the door, push the giraffe in, Close the door, right? Okay. <laughs> how do you get an, el- how do you put an elephant in a refrigerator? Did you say open the door, push the elephant in, close the door? Uh, hold it. You, no, that's wrong. You open the door, take the giraffe out, <laughs> put the elephant in, close the door. Oh boy. Have you ever seen an elephant, well hold it, uh, why do elephants uh, paint their toenails red? So they can hide behind the strawberries in your refrigerator, right? <laughs> Have you ever seen an elephant in your refrigerator? Uh, no you haven't, right? It works, doesn't it? <laughs> How do you know there's an elephant, been an elephant in your refrigerator? There's footprints in the uh, jello. Um, how do you tell if there are two elephants in your refrigerator? Door won't close. <laughs> Why are there so many elephants running free in the jungle? The refrigerator can't hold them. Okay, have you ever seen an elephant uh, climb a cherry tree? You say no? Okay. uh Toenail painting works, doesn't it? Okay, why is it uh, dangerous to walk outside between 3 and 4 p.m.? That's when elephants jump out of trees. Okay, you you could tell elephant jokes, and, and 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 if you're in this mindset, the elephants will not go away. And that's the way it is with evolution. It's a giant elephant in our refrigerator, and it's preventing us from seeing the world as it really is. So what you want to do is... Very gently ask people to look into their refrigerator, see what's there. Okay, remember the three attitudes. Uh, encounter the elephant. Look in the refrigerator to see what is really there. Okay, and then tell stories and, and develop a talking point agenda. Is that good advice? Okay, I think. And and that's uh, probably. Um, well, and when you encounter the elephant you you need to be very respectful, don't you, okay, of the elephant. And and, and you, you don't want to laugh or anything like that, but you just want people to challenge their own elephant uh, image. Okay, here's the three actions, and I think this is where um, we, we can spend a long time talking. We need to be doing quality science in strategic fields. Okay, very important that creation science generate its good science and do its own science. We can't wait for the establishment to challenge their own dogma. We have to do it gently ourselves and strategically. Okay, in geology, there are two fields that need to be penetrated immediately if we're to be effective. If we're going to be marginal... We don't need to do these things, but if we want to be in the real action area in the world, we need to be talking about radioisotope dating. Okay, we need to be doing radioisotope dating and we need to, uh, we we need to do more radioisotope dating than anybody else in the world. We need to be the world's experts at radioisotope dating. Uh, that's number one. In geology, that would be a, a strategic field that we should be in. Uh, When I uh, did the rate project, uh, I I dated the bottom layer of the Grand Canyon. Nobody had ever done it before by four different methods. But I I, uh, found a diabase rock uh, formation in the Bass Rapids diabase sill down uh, 100 miles below um, uh, Lee's Ferry. And down at, at Bass Rapids, I collected this. Rock body that should give one age. It was a molten body intruded between rock layers, which should give the, um, it should give one age for these formations. I separated out, f- um, various types of minerals in the rock formation, separated those minerals, and, uh, then I did radioisotope dating by four different methods. I did lead-lead, samarium-neodymium, rubidium-strontium, and potassium-argon dating one rock four different methods i had a, I had a little talk with god before uh, i did this i said what would happen god if i got four dif- if i got four concordant ages by the four different methods on the same rock what would hap- you know uh, what would i do i'd be in a pickle wouldn't i i'd i'd, I'd have to report it and say it looks like the four different dating methods gave a concordant age for the, for the formation. And what happened? Uh, I got the data back, um, spent about $250,000 on radioisotopes in those rocks. And four different ages, one rock. Four different ages, and they were significantly different. What is the true age of the diabase sill in the bottom of Grand Canyon? Is it A, 1.8 billion years, the the uranium lead isochron, uh, whole rock and mineral isochron age? Is it uh, B, the uh, samarium neodymium radio uh, isotope uh, ratio isochron, um, 1.6 billion years? Or is it C, the rubinium strontium uh, Samarium neodymium, uh, was number two B. Uh, number three is, uh, rubidium strontium isochron age, 1.07 billion years. Or D, the potassium argon isochron age, 0.85 billion years. Or E, none of the above. E, okay, so that. <laughs> Uh none of the I think the right answer is none of the above. Okay. Uh and uh so radioisotope dating has a problem. The clocks are broken. Okay. And if we understand that we could correctly interpret the radioisotopes, uh that would be a great um, one of the greatest things that creation science could do would be to do that. Another thing that creation science could do is when the Coconino sandstone debate. You know, that, that, that sandstone, several hundred feet below the rim of Grand Canyon, 300 feet thick, it forms that uh, diagonal layering, a kind of a, a pink, uh, very pink-colored uh, layer, very distinctive as you look out uh, from the rim of Grand Canyon. The Coconino sandstone is interpreted to be a desert deposit, a desert deposit, wind-blown desert deposit. In fact, I've heard people argue, uh, uh, Christian, Christians argue that there must be long periods of time in the geologic record because uh, there's all kinds of marine deposits around, but there's marine deposits above and below the Cocaine Sandstone. There can't be one flood to deposit because that's made by wind, and uh, the earth was dry, not uh, wet. Okay? And that's an exception. Uh, that's, a, that's a formation that Noah's flood can't explain. I think we should, uh, take that one on. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? Okay, we, well, I think we should say, hey, let's take this one on. Okay, uh, one of my, um my, my mentors that I've the mentored, um, John Whitcomb, or John Whitmore, John Whitmore at uh, Cedarville, he's working on that subject with his students, with some of his students. Um, so we should be doing strategic science fields. We should be doing strategic science fields. Um, and that's the kind of thing that um, will get people's attention. Okay, the next thing we should do is communicate creation truth at all academic levels, from uh, grammar school all the way through to uh uh research uh, gatekeepers all the way up the 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 chain of information i think we should communicate creation truth at all academic levels now i uh love that uh that people have museums okay we have creation museums appearing around the country and we'll go, i think we're going to have another creation museum and now we're going to have a creation um, flood uh noah's ark theme park Okay, in Kentucky, $125 million. Okay, uh, we're, we're doing, uh, some strategic, uh, areas fairly well. But how much is being spent on doing cutting edge creation research on, on these strategic fields? And, and who in the creation movement has a ministry to the college campuses? There's hardly any. And that, that bothers me. You see what see what see what bothers me? I think it should be top down. We should be doing some really really we should be knocking down some ivory towers, and then we should be communicating this down at lower levels. okay, and then um, we need to get to know the gatekeepers. okay, um, believe it or not, there are people in the media, there are people around in science that are able to listen. And some of them are even gatekeepers, and you can go to a science meeting, like I did. I, I put, uh, I, I did a paper on a Jerusalem earthquake of 33 A.D. I did a poster because I wanted people to come by and and uh, talk to me about it. And uh, gatekeepers come by, people that uh, know me find me and start talking. I had 50 people talking to me. About the earthquake at the cross, there's the crucifixion on the wall. The the, the verse out of uh, Matthew 27, 27:51. Uh, the the earthquake, and um, it's history, right? And it's uh, it, uh, that's data in, uh, for uh, for geologists. Historical data, and it just happens to be the most important event in the history of the world—the uh, the death of the the Savior on the on the cross—and uh, fifty dollars talked to me. Okay, and that was a that that's the kind of thing you can do. Now you can find the gatekeepers. Let, let me tell you about I'll tell you a gatekeeper story, and uh, maybe this will help. Maybe you have a, a story like it. Um, I wrote a paper called. Uniformitarianism, A Doctrine That Needs Rethinking. And uh, that was one of my early um, uh, non-Christian general uh, academic publications in my master's thesis. Anyway, it was circulated, and um, there was a man named uh, G. Brent Dalrymple who read my paper and thanked me for writing that paper. It challenged the establishment view in 1979, right as 1980 came around and and of course dinosaur extinction was explained slow and gradual and then it became a a global catastrophe and so catastrophe thinking was rather uh, neglected and all of that was swept under the rug it started being swept out from under the rug and catastrophe theory got back into geology in the 1980s anyway this gatekeeper uh, G. Brent Dalrymple uh, thanked me for writing that paper and uh I saw I sent him back a a copy of the paper and uh r- wrote uh, thank you for doing your thing and then then later on uh, we contacted each other again let me let me tell you the incident uh, there was i i was on a field trip in um, Kentucky, and we're going to see a coal bed and um in a coal mine and we're going to be talking about that next to me in the bus is sitting this man I won't mention his name but he was from uh, UK and he had run a potassium argon dating lab and un, uh, uns, uh, um, without any uh, prompting from me he basically said um, I quit I quit the radio isotope uh, potassium argon lab. I just quit, and uh, and I, so I started asking. I had asked him some questions about why he quit, and he and, and the and the basics of what he was saying was, I know the data I was putting out to the geologic community, and then I realized how little of it got published, and he he said. He said to me, uh, "It looks like they're being very selective in uh, how they publish the potassium argon data, and he said, "I just want to get out of that field i 'm quitting and uh, so he became a cold geologist, <laughs> okay anyway, so that was that was it's interesting. So I started f- reflecting on why he quit and what was going on, and my friend G. Brent Dalrymple, I remember him, he was what the inventor of the potassium argon dating system. He wrote the book on potassium argon dating. That's the guy who had called me or wrote the letter to me. So he was a gatekeeper. So the next thing I was doing in Grand Canyon was I was dating Grand Canyon lava flows. You know, lava spilled over the rim of the Grand Canyon. I was dating it by potassium argon method. And, um, you know, um, um, Davis Young from, uh, Calvin College had said, Steve, you must believe the Grand Canyon was deposited before Noah's flood because the lava flow that spilled over the rim of the Grand Canyon blocked the river gave an age of 1.18 plus or minus 0, 0.02 million years. In other words, the canyon's been there sitting stagnant for a million years. You must believe that Noah's flood had no idea, because uh, Noah was not a, a million years ago. You, you understand that argument? So uh, I was out there dating by potassium argon technique, the lava dam that he uh, he, he specified was the main problem with radioisotope dating. Anyway, the gatekeeper uh, I, I had made friendship with, uh, I needed to, to talk to him. So what what I did... <laughs> was I very carefully looked at all of his publications and his data, and I said, look, almost more than half of the potassium argon dates that you have done in Grand Canyon are are wrong in, in the stratigraphic order of those lavas that spilled into the canyon. And he admitted it. And uh, then, uh, and, and I said, do you believe that the the Tora Weep Lava Dam there at uh, Lava Falls Rapid is 1.18 plus or minus 0.02 million years old? And he had already recanted that date. Okay, he had said that was wrong. And because there were others, juxtaposition of other lava flows that uh, gave uh, older and younger ages. Anyway, so he threw that one out. So I went and I had a hypothesis from Mount St. Helens Lava Dome. You know, I dated Mount St. Helens Lava Dome at three hundred and fifty thousand plus or minus fifty thousand years using potassium argon. It was eleven year old rock that uh dated three three hundred and fifty thousand years old. So I I separated out a mineral, a black mineral from the lava dome at Mount St. Helens and I gave it uh to the lab and I said, You can you can date this. And um, I got 3.4 million years for a mineral in the lava dome at Mount St. Helens that crystallized from magma just 11 years before. What does that show me? There's some type of argon being included or occluded in the mineral structure at uh, Mount St. Helens. So then I said, I could go to Grand Canyon and ask the same question. Uh and so I went and I separated out the mineral olivine from the lava flows in several of the Grand Canyon rocks and uh, ran them through the dating lab at uh, uh, Geochron Labs. Uh, Dick Reisman was the uh, director of the lab, and um, I got um, I got uh, bogus dates, okay, and huge dates on olivine. Um, olivine is the mineral that has no potassium in it so it should have no argon from radioisotope decay of potassium because there isn't any and um when i sent it originally to the lab i sent olivine to the to the lab the mineral olivine the uh, the, the lab tech said how wrote back a letter how dare you send us olivine because it has no potassium in it and why would you want to do potassium argon dating on olivine and i'd already talked to the lab manager dick Reisman, about it i know your acid solution can dissolve this mineral measure i'm contracting you to measure the argon in this mineral and when when i did that um the uh, uh i i i also uh Communicated with G. Brent Dalrymple, the, the gatekeeper. And the, the long story or the short story is that, uh, Dick Reisman wrote me back a really nice letter. He said, wow, you found all of this argon in olivine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that is, that is really significant. And, um, then, uh, I talked to, uh, G. Brent Dalrymple and I said, Hey that lava dam at mile 202 that you think is 400,000 years old that lava flow does it have any argon in it or uh, any olivine in it and any any he, uh, uh he didn't write back because all basalt has olivine in it you know you know what i mean uh, it's like uh so so it's is the pope catholic is there is there uh, olivine in uh, in in uh, basaltic lava the answer is yes so anyway i I separated out the olivine from that lava dam that he said was successfully dated at 400,000 years old, and I ran it through Dick Reesman's laboratory like the other sample. And, uh, and it gave a uh, huge age, millions of years' age. And what does that show me? It shows me there's some, some technical problem with the assumptions of radioisotope dating, and the gatekeeper admitted it. Okay, he admitted it, and he acknowledged that that was a problem, and uh, they were honest. Okay, and you know what happened next? Dick Reisman quit the laboratory. The, sup- the supervisor of the lab just quit, and they put the whole lab out of business because they know that there's something wrong with their dating method, okay, and that, that's, that's not. In other words, if you get to know the gatekeepers, you can ask them good questions. That's that's uh, what what I think we should be doing. Where does creation science go from here? How do you talk how to talk to anyone about creation? Three affirmations, conscience, cosmos, and command. Okay, think of those three words. Um, the the affirmations. Uh, we have three attitudes. You can uh, um, think about the elephant, the refrigerator, and talking point agendas, and then of course the three actions. Get uh, uh, let's do quality creation science. That's the that, that's the ministry I think of this uh, um, this generation is to get some of that uh, that going and um, do um, interact and uh, discuss it on all academic levels and even challenge the gatekeepers. Heavens recount abundantly the evidence of the presence of God. The expanse manifests His handiwork. Psalm 19.1. Uh, Psalm 8. O Lord, Oh Lord, how ma- magnificent is your name in all the earth. You have placed your splendor above the heavens. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the star, which thou hast established. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you regard him? Uh, you made him a little lower than the angels, that type of thing. Okay, so... Can you use creation to talk to people about who God is okay questions oh five minutes perfect okay all right well, I can tell you more gatekeeper stories uh, <laughs> uh but uh that that's uh, that's interesting so anyway but I'm, I'm five minutes early. That's, ready I'm ready for Q We've got six minutes for Okay, yes. And let's. Uh, that roving microphone right there.
0: Okay, that was great, Steve. A lot of good suggestions, a lot of ideas. I've got, got a question that, that sort of dovetails between Ray's presentation. Hi, Ray. And uh, what he's talking about, we may get into it t- some tomorrow, and also what you're talking about with dating, because uh, some of us were talking about this the other day, that, that in, if you look at um, the age of the earth issues, people always say, well, the age of the earth goes to Genesis 1, but there's nothing in Genesis 1 to talk about the age of the earth. age of the earth really goes to your numbers in the genealogies. Yes, And when you look at the numbers, I had uh, Old Testament professor Dallas tell, tell me this. He had written his doctoral dissertation at Dallas, Al Ross, on the Table of Nations. And he would say, and when I'd ask him if there were gaps in the genealogies, he said, exegetically you can't see any gaps in the genealogy. So based on exegesis alone, always a key phrase, that means the earth somewhere 4,000 to 4,500 years old based on I mean, 4,000 to 4,500 BC for creation, based on yeah. those numbers. But then he adds, "But when you look at archaeology, at, at, at archaeology uh, in Egypt and other places, it suggested that that there were civilizations there uh, that would be post-flood civilizations that are six, seven, eight, nine thousand years old. So the question I'm asking is." When you look at dating, these these dating methodologies that are used to get millions of years for in 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 creation, how does that relate to the dating methodologies that are used in archaeology that get these ages that conflict with you know an understanding of the age of the age, age of the Earth and the timing of the flood?
1: Okay, let's uh, the, the the short answer for archaeology is they don't use any of the dating methods for the old uh, ages. They don't use uranium lead, lead lead, potassium argon, rubidium, strontium samarium neodymium. They don't use those types of, of millions of years uh, dating methods. Uh, they've calibrated tree ring chronologies by C14. And carbon-14 is the primary um, method that's used to date artifacts in civilization the problem with C14 is that where, where you have known ages like for example 701 BC, uh, Sennacherib invasion of Jerusalem you know that we, we know the we, we, we know uh, we know that very well and it's a eclipse calibrated by the Bergsadal eclipse and some other things there that that, that date 701 is really uh, uh, solid. Okay, the 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 ravine. me The carbon-14 dating, the carbon-14 dates are old, fifty to a hundred years older than they should be. As you go back even earlier, in uh, like in Abraham's time, those carbon-14 dates are older than what we would understand the biblical, the true biblical date to be. Way off. And so, carbon-14 deviates from calendar years or history. Um, Exponentially, as you go back, and so uh, I think Egyptian culture is rather early. Babylonian culture is early after the flood. Those are going to give very old ages. So that that would be my first take on what's wrong with um, with uh, dating. But most uh, archaeologists uh, are a little bit distrustful of of C-14 dating. They don't use it a lot. Okay, but it but the impact has been
0: felt there. Yeah, aren't, aren't there other dating methods that they use related to stratification that may be impacted by climate change? Uh, as you were pointing out, or somebody was pointing out yesterday, you have you know, the earth is well-watered from... Uh, right. Like okay, so, so, in watered, so, so, time, so in Abraham's Lot time, Lot looks down
1: different. and he sees the, the the plane of the Kirkar uh, as it's well-watered. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so he sees... The plane is well watered, and uh, but how do we know how old that was? We think that's back there, you know, the time of Egypt and and that type of thing. So uh, Abraham is over, uh, is off at least a thousand years from C14. Yeah, if
0: they're, if they're making assumptions based upon certain uh, stratification and how long a civilization lasted, based on meteorological assumptions, that's not uni- and it's not uniformitarian, but they're assuming that. It was the same then as it is now that would throw off their dating as well, right yes,
1: Okay. so we, we have um, we, I, I think we, we can be uh, um, we can be very hopeful there i don 't think c fourteen is really going to going to significantly impact the way we 're thinking here uh, about ancient civilizations very much i think the the correct story to tell is it 's very poorly calibrated. And if, if C-14 is off that much, it could be way off uh, for early Egyptian Babylonian uh,
0: culture. Right. Okay. Any, any other questions, uh, Clyde? This, this may have been from your Grand Canyon book uh, that I bought the last time you were here, but, but uh, the, talking about the, the sandstone there and in, in, in the Grand Canyon the Cocatino,
1: Coconino Sandstone. Coconino,
0: okay. I I was there in October and I still can't say it. Uh, um, There was a discussion about how sand drifts and it differs from sand drifting caused by water currents and and the slopes are different. Uh, Is that something that you mentioned in that book?
1: Yeah. Okay, it's almost a no-brainer. that the Coconino sandstone was deposited under water, and um, if geologists will only look and think about the data, what they see, uh, they should come up to that conclusion, I think. And, um, but geologists are, uh, are reluctant. Why, why are they reluctant to have the Coconino sandstone be accumulated underwater? Because the water would have to be moving at about a meter per second, okay, which is a pretty fast moving current to, to make that type of structure, the dune structure underwater dune structure and then the Coconino sandstone occurs over a quarter million square miles so you've got to have an ocean moving at a meter per second over a quarter million square miles depositing Coconino sandstone and uh, one of my uh, uh, my associates uh at at penn state university said it's too big right that's it's too big that's a favorite expression but i don't know i'm i think outside the box and it's not not too big for me and i can imagine a global flood and what easily explain a quarter million square mile area with uh, uh with current structures you know that are a meter per second that's a that 's a very unusual ocean, and it 's too big for the uniformitarian mindset, so that 's the kind of thing I think that that we can talk about and uh, and, and we should clearly focus and that we should set the agenda that 's uh, one of the one of our talking points so sedimentation and radioisotopes I think those are the two things that geologists should be doing to challenge the establishment and even confront the gatekeepers.
0: Hey, we have another question.
2: Uh, Yes, uh, I'm just curious in your discussions and meetings with other scientists uh, regarding the the evidence in science for the validity of the Bible, if you've considered going in the opposite direction, too, because the Bible proclaims scientific fact many thousands of years before it became scientific fact, and in particular, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by is that uh, in, in quantum physics today, the, the prevailing, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the prevailing view of the, the nature of reality is that the foundation of all reality is vibration at different frequencies, which to me, you know, just, I mean, I think, okay, well, what speech... It's its vibration at different frequencies, and how does God? How does the Bible say that God created the world, and how does He sustain the world? It's through His word, through His speech, you know. So, I mean, there's things like that in Job: the earth suspended by nothing, in Isaiah: this, the heavens stretched forth like a fabric, and that's Einstein. I mean, I mean, do you guys get into that or what? Uh, yes, uh, cosmology is very important. Yeah, what, what, uh, um, yeah,
1: what, um, what is matter? It's probably energy in some type of, like you say, vibrational form. So uh, um, he created all things by the word of his power. Right. So word power, go, they go together. And so, yeah, um, that's what it would take to speak uh, matter, space and time into existence simultaneously. That that that's a that's a challenge. I think we need a new cosmology to replace Big Bang cosmology. And it needs to be a biblically-based cosmology. And, and what is interesting is Logos Research Associates has a committee that's, that's attacking that, uh, that problem of um, generating a, a consistent creationist cosmology, essentially. That would be, wouldn't that be the best thing since sliced bread, have a cosmology that predicts the way the universe is because God spoke it into existence?
0: Great. Well, thanks again, Steve. We need to break for, break for lunch, and they have all the food set out out there. So we have a um, we have a two-hour break, and then the next session begins at uh, 1:30. I do have one announcement that somebody who has a there's a blue Volvo out in front with license plate D K P four seven three three has their blinker lights on. So I don't know if that's anybody in here. What? Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. And who is that? Okay. Then there's um, uh. And Ray is going to give a talk at noon. Uh, he's going to. It's going to be on um, uh, a book review. What's the name of the book, Ray? In the beginning, we misunderstood. Oh, in the beginning, we misunderstood. So, uh, that's going to start at twelve thirty. So we'll have an hour, and then twelve thirty. He's going to give a book review in here for those who want to listen to that. Let me go ahead and return. Thanks for the food. Father, we're thankful for this time today. We're thankful for Steve and his work and for many other scientists, creation scientists, who take your, your word at its face value and who are doing science on that basis and help us to understand uh, your creation better and also evidence for your creation. We thank you for the food you provided for us today, and we ask that you sanctify it to our bodies. In Christ's name, amen.